everybody. Welcome to No Country. This is episode zero. This is a new podcast that is being put together by me, J. David Osborne, and him, Chris Sacknesson. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Good, David. Good. Very glad to be here. Excellent. Cool. So this is our proof of concept episode. This is going to be a chat style show where Chris and I talk about many different themes. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But first, for people who are either you know, coming back and starting the show from the very beginning, or maybe people who kind of don't know who we are to begin with, I'd like to just give a brief introduction. Um, and actually, let's start with Chris. Chris, can you give us a brief introduction of who in the hell you are? Okay, um, I'm a novelist and um, multimedia artist. Um, I take pictures for the National Geographic amongst you know many other places. Um, and I'm a failed anthropologist <laughs> and world traveler. Um, I've lived most of my life outside of America. I'm from the Bay Area originally, um, but I've lived most of my life overseas. I've been back um, in the USA um, since 2012. I live in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, which is the entertainment capital of the world, even with COVID-19. Um, uh, a great desert landscape, um, and yeah, I, I, I've, I, I consider myself, I guess, primarily a writer, but um, I, I do try to work um, in the visual arts as much as I can, as professionally as I can, and I'm very proud that I have a major contract with Rutledge Press um, for a creative writing textbook, um, and I've got a, a uh, one of my best books, I think, under uh, development in uh, Hollywood if COVID-19 calms down. Um, so, And which book is that? Private Midnight, which I think is your favorite. That's my favorite. Um, That's and, my favorite. I'll just briefly interrupt you and let everybody know that you have to go read Private Midnight. All writers start off as children writing their own stories and you know it's sort of an innate ability that we have but there's also always that one book that you read that makes you think this is the thing that i want to do with life and uh chris's private midnight was that for me so please continue i just had to inject my two cents well thank you for that because that was a book that almost killed me and i i do think there is an element and we'll get to talking about this over time that you know great art if it really is going to happen at all, um, and even if it's not great, if just if it's good art, I think it, it, it pushes you to a place that is um, dark and mysterious and, and strange and wonderful, and we need to support all artists who are trying to go there. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that I really always have loved about you is that you're a very generous, sold artist, um, I, as I've grown up, um, and I think we should tell people that there's a big age difference between us, um, I have never known um, writers who are really that generous uh, as you are. Um, oh, thanks. And I think that's really important because um, this is how we'll survive as a community. And I think one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast, not just for writers, but for any people who are creative at all, to, to make them feel welcome and, mm -hmm. and to realize that, you know, you're not alone, you know. Right. Um, these are strange, weird, bizarre, 
very difficult times, um, but you're not alone. Um, yes, exactly, exactly. So I'm J. David Osborne. I wrote a book called By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends. It was uh, set in a Russian gulag. Basically, these dudes have to escape, and in order to do so, they have to bring someone with them who they eat when they run out of food. That was about 10 years ago. Uh, Chris blurbed that one. That might have been how we met, actually. I might have asked you to blurb. I think it was. Yeah. I think it was how that how we met. And I I was immensely impressed by... I still am. I, I think that's a book that, that I would recommend to many people still um, because I think it, it is a good example of a creative voice being larger than the lived experience. And, you know, we're, we're going to talk about things like cultural appropriation and staying in your lane and all this nonsense that is happening today and great work happens when people don't stay in their lane Mm -hmm. and you know i think that that was a really good example i i felt like i was in that gulag i felt like i really understood what was going on and it was um it was hair raising it was frankly hair raising and i i really admired that a young writer um who really hadn't ever seen that sort of environment could take us there so completely, you know? Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. So those are our books. You should go out and buy them. Put a plug here right at the top of the show. And I want to talk. Chris was touching on it a little bit earlier. But so the name of this podcast is No Country. And basically... So for me, what no country essentially means is I've always considered myself to be as an artist, somebody who's in these communities, someone who's more left-leaning, somebody who leans left socially, economically, et cetera. And then recently, I don't know if you heard about this, Chris, but there was this thing called COVID-19. Have, have you heard of this this virus? Oh, I, you know, I, I think a little bit of that has drifted my way. Yes. So I, I, I have heard it. Yeah, you have, like people, people need to wear masks and things, right? Yeah, exactly. you got to mask up to save the world. But um, So basically, when that hit, I was very suspicious of it because my perception of the world, and especially the people who run the world, is that it's largely run by people who are driven by money and power, not by any sort of goodwill towards their fellow men. So You think? Yeah, so when that hit... I was very skeptical about the whole narrative, the media narrative that was surrounding COVID-19. And foolishly, I put my thoughts on places like Twitter and Facebook, and I very quickly realized that people had already made that a political football. And so they sort of started coming after me. Uh, People who I considered to be my friends sort of very quickly, immediately disowned me. And I I guess I got very minorly canceled, might be the term for it. And so when that happened, that got my mind going, and I thought to myself, you know, I might not, I might not be on the left at all. Maybe I'm not. So the no country for me very specifically has to do with the kind of fact that I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm an artist, I'm a guy who likes to read philosophy and things like that, but that I also don't, my ideas don't necessarily fit into the, the boxes that have been set forward for me the boxes of acceptability for thinking. And I'm, I'm also a dude. I'm a guy. You know, I love to work out. I love to be outside. I, I like, uh, you know, cars and shit like that. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not somebody who, is, um, who necessarily fits the, the current mold. So I felt very 
uh, alone, but then I thought to myself, you know, I have all these great friends who I, I chat with on the phone all the time. You're one of them. All these people who have these sort of great stories, and for the most part, they are all similarly outsiders in their own way. So I'll pass it off to you then, and 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 see what what of that resonates to you, and and what is what does this no country mean to you? Well. It means a lot to me because the biggest experience of my life was stepping free of American culture or stepping free of, of, of any culture, you know. I think that's a really rare moment that people can do. Um, and it, it never comes because of conscious effort. Um, you can't travel um, with money to make that happen. Um, you have to be working, living, experiencing other cultures and to really step outside your own, the baggage that you carry, the cargo that you carry, let's put it in a positive way, um, is a very, very special thing. On the other hand, you never feel like you're at home ever again. And I I never, I I, I haven't. I've been back in America since 2012, and I feel very alien and foreign here. Um, Like you, I wonder, um, am I left? Am I right? Um, I'm, I'm... I'm nuanced, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I have complicated positions on things, and that's not. We're not living in a time now where complicated positions, politically, economically, and socially, are valued uh, at all. Whereas, you know, artistically, those were the highlights of the past. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very strange. I think we're, I think we're living in a very, very odd moment in time. I wanted to start this podcast off, which, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is going to be this freewheeling chat conversation uh, that goes over weeks and weeks. And, you know, depending on, you know, how many people dig it and how many people tune in uh, will be something that we'll do indefinitely. Right. So but I wanted to start it off with this story that you told me once. We wanted to call the episode The Butterfly in Your Mouth for a very specific reason. So I was wondering if you could give us the story of that title. What is the butterfly in your mouth? Okay, well, in my uh, mid-20s, I went to Melanesia, which is the Western Pacific Black Islands of New Guinea, Mm -hmm. New Caledonia, Vanuatu. Um, And I was trying to be an anthropologist. I was really um, wanting to experience some very remote village areas and I got very interested in, in terms of initiation rites, which I think is something that is desperately lacking in Western culture, and the concept of tribal magic. Um, and I managed to meet an older man who, you know, what a beautiful soul. I can see him in my mind's eye right now. I mean, he was probably 75 uh, then, still enormously fit. Uh, in a way that Western people are not, really. Because, um, you know, we're not talking tennis club or, you know, some sort of elliptic, you know, device or something. Just a natural fitness. And he was the major sorcerer in the, in the area. And um, his prerequisite class for me um, was for me to climb... Uh, 150 feet straight up, a one-to-one gradient limestone cliff um, in 105 degrees Fahrenheit, 100% humidity. But the kicker 
was that I had to have a live saffron yellow butterfly in my mouth and to keep it alive the whole time and to release it at the top of the cliff safe and and capable of flight and I did that um, it was a very weird experience you know you can ask yourself well you know what's the point of that mm-hmm. um, well you don't really ask an old man of magic you know what's the point you just be grateful that you've ever met them at all um, but what it what it really taught me was a connection between my own personal psyche, my my personal physical body, this cliff face, which was hand over hand, and this beautiful butterfly. That, that part of the world is famous for its butterflies. The great butterfly collectors of the world go there. And I managed to keep this thing alive. Um, and it taught me, I'm not sure what it taught me. Um, it was too almost precious to really try to articulate but it was the beginning of a relationship um and when um when the old man um did die many years later um i came back to the island and um gave uh, a speech at his service which i thought was very moving for me to be allowed to do mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it was really an example i think of where magic is real and where it's about kind of serving, you know. Um, I, I felt that, that I, was, I was grateful to be his, his student, you know. Right. Um, it was, it, I wasn't humbled. I, I felt vindicated, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And it brings up a few things. Whenever you talk about initiation rites, it makes me think of Pythagorean mystery cult initiations and how new students to the cult would have to take a vow of silence for a couple of years before they were allowed to engage in any kind of dialogue with anybody. And that does a couple of things. Number one, if you're a brand new, you know, initiate, there's that kind of, uh, have you ever met somebody who just became a Christian and right. all, they, all they want to do is tell you about Jesus, right? So right. it puts the lid on that, right? You, you can't go around proselytizing to people. Uh, secondly, you don't probably have anything interesting to say. But third of all, uh, it makes it so that you have to really experience the world around you physically without adding your own two cents to it. So, you know, I moved back to Oklahoma recently. And something that I was thinking about when I moved back was that in all my life that I lived there and in all the time that I spent in Portland and El Paso, I never really got out and just sort of walked around. I never became a part of the environment that I was in. And I always had these damn headphones in my ears and I was looking at my phone and, you know, looking at what was going on on Facebook and Twitter. So I thought to myself after, you know, having uh, looked into psychogeography, you know, people like Alan Moore and Will Self, um, I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to start taking two to three hour walks every day with nothing on me at all. I'm just going to walk as far as I want to walk in this town that I live in, and then I'm going to go home. So at first I actually had a little notebook with me that I was using to take uh, notes about things that I saw, but then I even left that at home because it wasn't about... Uh, putting any of that out into the physical world. It was more about 
making it so that the map and the territory became one thing, right? And the map, nice. the map, yeah. the map being something that is inside my own head, and that I'm able, like things inside my head begin. The furniture starts to get moved around, right, by your outer space, and um, it makes me kind of think of how before that I would get into my car, go to school, uh, get back from school, go to work. You know, that's been pretty much the story of my at least adult life. Um, and it makes me think of those little hamster cages with all the tubes in them, you know, or <laughs> I visited, yeah. I visited Toronto a few years ago and there are some apartment complexes there. It gets so cold in the winter that people actually go underground. So you'll go down from your apartment and, and below it, there are restaurants and stores and they all connect with these little tubes. So you can go places without ever actually being in the environment. And fair enough, it's fucking cold in Toronto. I get that. But for somebody who lives in a place like Oklahoma, for that matter, Las Vegas, there's, there's no sense in just staying in your car at, at, at all, really. I mean, you have to get out. You have to look around. That's what the butterfly in the mouth, I don't know if means is the correct word, but that's what resonates with me when you tell me about that because you're becoming a part of the universe. You're scaling a cliff face, uh, so you're interacting with your outer environment and you're also at the same time you're keeping something alive inside of you uh without killing it right and that that to me yeah. that to me maps psychogeographically like to to really become a part of the landscape well you know this is the thing that that i think we've lost as westerners um i have an enormous admiration for the solomon islanders who are part of the whole melanesian uh, archipelago system they're the most alert people I've ever met. And during World War II, they played an enormous role helping the Allies. And it was never seen appropriate to count any one of them missing in action or MIA. They always had their own category of NYA, not yet arrived. And their alertness and their, their sensitivity to their environment is something that is so profound, and I, I'm I'm very excited that I'm I'm ushering in one really fine writer who's um, going to be published by the University of Queensland Press in Australia. Um, but I think it's a level of physicality in writing and thinking that we so desperately need in this country, mm -hmm. where we're you know we're socially you know involved, but we're all so used to our cell phones and uh, Twitter and, you know, it just, we're lost. We're mm -hmm. really lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, we're lost and it's because I think that people don't have anything bigger that they sort of give themselves over to. There's this kind of cult of the, of the there's like the culture of narcissism. Who was it, Lash, who wrote that book? Christopher Lash. Yeah. Um, we really are now in the middle of the culture of narcissism. And when you look online and you see how many people have uh, depression and anxiety and, and things of that nature, it's like, well, you know, you eat like shit. Um, you don't go outside. You stare at a blue light deep into the night, completely fucking over your circadian rhythm. You sleep with that thing turned on, emitting who knows what untold radiations into your body while you sleep. <laughs> And then you wake up and the first thing you do is turn on Twitter and find out what's wrong with the world today, you know? So it really doesn't surprise me that people 
have this kind of thing. And what people need, the answer, I think, and this is just one part of a much bigger thing, but they need to understand that there are forces that are, are much bigger. You and I have had a conversation about tornadoes recently that I, I thought was really good about that. You had a particular story about a giant ice cream cone. I thought that was pretty good. Well, yeah, you know, the, the thing was, like, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, which for, I, you know, like Oakland, Berkeley, and liberal world, you know, par excellence. And for me, a lot of America didn't seem real. And yet I, I got out on the road. I, I was a hitchhiker and a, I, I, I rode trains, you know. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone to do that anymore. It's very dangerous now. Um, but I got out, you know, early. And when I was 18, I, I went to Hydro, Oklahoma, um, which to me seemed like beyond, over the rainbow, you know, over the rainbow. Uh, it was, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and I, I didn't know, but I found out quickly that the uh, local high school team was called the Wildcats. And there was this gal who was 25 and looked sort of pretty, who was still wearing her Wildcats, you know, sweatshirt. And, um, and I, I sort of was chatting her up. I thought, well, you know, it's, uh, I've got to meet people out on the road, right? And, um, and we were out in front of this sort of <clears throat> kind of like a dismal frosty freeze type of thing where there was this concrete ice cream cone about five foot high, um, but, but thick, you know, a, a really big concrete ice cream cone. Um, and lo and behold, a tornado came up. And I thought, you know, fuck me dead. I, you know, this is, this is like, I'm, I realize I'm in Tornado Alley, but I didn't really expect I was going to find a tornado. And she grabbed my arm, very, very pretty woman, and um, escorted me into the Frosty Freeze to take cover. And we watched while this concrete ice cream cone got swept away over the horizon. And I just thought, welcome to Oklahoma, the That's heartland right. of, you know, I just thought this is, this is better than I could <laughs> deal with, you know. It yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And um. And I, I did um, actually spend the night with her, I need to sort of say. Score. Um, so it was kind of good all around. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> you know? that's a, that, that story has a good ending. I didn't know that part, but that's, that's important. Um, yeah, tornadoes are just this amazing thing that I've dealt with pretty much my whole life. And I've always thought it's kind of amazing that the sky can just turn green and open up and take your house if it wants to. You know, I had a particularly life-changing event with a tornado uh it was i had written a book called black gum about this time in my life but it was you know i was separated from my wife who's still my wife today and i was just my behavior was just awful i was just all over the place i was drugged up all the time so i had been at a rave or some such event in tulsa and i was driving back on i believe it was i-40 and basically you can see that the weather starts to change. And if you've lived here long enough, you know when that weather is tornado weather. So the wind starts whipping. I turn it to some AM weather radio station. And I learn, sure enough, that there's a tornado pretty much right on top of me. So I'm pushing my 98 gold Honda Civic as hard as it can go. It was this dump of a car. My brother had ran it under a bus. And so 
it didn't reverse and it wasn't able to break in, in, in fourth gear. So what I would have to do is I'd crank it up and I'd have to let off the gas pedal and let it slow down to about 55 so I could get it into third gear. So I was just in this car pushing it as hard as it could go, which was maybe 85, 90 miles an hour. And I see a cop car behind me coming up, no lights on. And I think to myself, like, there's no way he's going to pull me over. And sure enough, he did not. He actually whipped past me because he was thinking, fuck this too. He was trying to get out of harm's way. So I end up getting to one of the toll booths, which is one of the great ironies of Oklahoma roads, that they're complete shit, but you have to stop every 20 miles to pay a toll. Um, So I get to the toll and semi-trucks have parked in pretty much every entrance. They've decided that's where they're going to ride out the storm. So I park my car. I run out to the little kiosk. The wind is whipping all over the place and it's locked so the the toll takers have already taken shelter uh and locked the door so i go back to my car and i take out my phone it's a very primitive phone at the time and i called rios my wife and she picked up and i said look i just want to tell you that i'm sorry for everything that i've done and of course in her mind she's probably thinking you know david's drunk or high and he's you know which I wasn't. I was actually in that sort of state where you're coming down off a speed binge where your bones feel completely empty. But I don't blame her for thinking that. So she kind of hung up and I saw the tornado come down in the distance about a half a mile out. And I thought to myself, you know, this is pretty much what I deserve. And I was going to call my mother, but then I decided to sort of close my eyes and just sit there. And time passed and I opened them and the tornado was gone. The sun was out. And I thought to myself, so that is a sign. That is a message. That is not something that I'm going to ignore. That isn't something that, you know, that wasn't just a a phenomena of nature, you know? Like, tornadoes in my mind are sort of alive. There are, you know, native... Oh, they are. Yeah. They are alive. They're They're women. Yeah. (laughs) There are these native dudes, I think, out in El Reno... Uh, who are able to perform a ceremony in where they, if a tornado's coming their way, they throw a hatchet or a tomahawk into the ground and sort of split the tornado off so it'll go around. And it's got, a, I think, a 100% success rate. So what they're essentially doing is they're communicating with a living thing, right? And it's my belief that that tornado that I experienced was also a living thing. And in the same way that people talk about alien abduction stories or ghost stories or, you know, being visited by angels, that was, that was my Oklahoma angel that came down and didn't say a single word. I didn't hear anything telepathically or otherwise, but the message was clear. And the message was, I needed to get my fucking shit together. (laughs) That makes sense to me, you know, and I, I sort of feel sorry for people that doesn't make sense to because, you know, wonder is real and, and wonder is also very scary. Um, but if you cut yourself off from wonder because of you're scared, um, you miss the wonder, you know. And I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we, we live embedded in, in a fair. I mean, think of this, really. We're on a planet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That that escapes most people 99% of the time, you know? That is a bizarre fact that is just simply, it's astronomical, literally, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, and we just can't get with it, you know? Yeah, we can't get with it. And so I think practically what people can start doing 
what I think the the butterfly in the mouth and the and the walking around. So I like to take walks around these neighborhoods, as I said, and I like to look at people's porches, especially those people who, Me too. who you can tell have sort of lived there for sometimes maybe their whole life. But you know, they'll have bowling pins and hula hoops and those clay suns that are very prominent uh, decor in the Southwest and I suppose Oklahoma as well. Um, but you see all these people's lives lived, all these all these books. You're walking through a big library, right? And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the William James quote uh, that we're all sort of like cats in a library, how a, a cat can see all the books but can't read them, doesn't know, right. what, doesn't know <laughs> what the hell they are. And that's kind of – I think that humans are – give us a little bit more credit for that. So, you know, for example, today I'm walking around uh, – and I go to the gym, and I'm walking back from the gym, and uh, there's I go to get a bottle of water from this gas station that's sort of out. It's this outdoor kiosk, and uh, it's one half of it is shuttered. And I ask the attendant, you know, do you guys sell water? And he says, yeah, but somebody broke in, tried to break into it last night, so we can't open it. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, so that's what this part of the neighborhood is like. And I continue walking, and as I'm walking down the road. I see this uh, black dude laid out on the grass, just chilling in the shade, and he's yelling something at me. So I take my headphones out and I say, what's that, man? He said, what time is it? And I told him. And so first of all, I thought that was pretty amazing that this guy was living without any sense of what what time it was, which is something that we can kind of get into. I continue walking down the street, and as I get closer and closer to my house, I can hear him yelling at me again. So I take my headphones out, turn around, and I say, what? And he's standing there in the middle of the street, no shirt. And he says, I'm in the street. I'm in the middle of the street. And I thought that was (laughs) such a bizarro Zen interaction that we had there. You know, I was interacting with a person who probably on drugs, let's be fair, uh, but who really had a connection of kind of visceral connection to place. And so he was sort of doing the same thing that I was doing, whether he knew it or not. He was in the play. He was in the street. Does that make sense? Uh, look, it makes total sense to me. Like, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, you know, I, I've just been out on, on a really major road trip around Nevada, which is not my home state, but is my home now. And it's kind of something like what you've done moving back to Oklahoma. And I, I, I did catch up with uh, a, a Paiute uh, friend of mine from the past. I did a, uh, a course in Native American Studies in, in, in college. Um, and I did my residency at the, the Paiute Reservation in Pyramid Lake. And it's closed now because of... Uh, that virus that people talk about. Um, but uh, I met him for a beer. And, um, you know, we have very different life paths. He, he's, he's the head of logistics at a major cement plant. Um, and, you know, and I'm not. Um, but he had taken me out hunting with his son back around um, the turn of the century. Um, and I'm not a big hunter. I, I never have been, except I, I hunted wild boar in New Guinea. Um, but he took me out with his son, and it really meant something to be with them. The snow was just starting to fall. And I, and I thought to myself, and I thought again just the last couple of days, 
that sense that cultural coherence is very, very localized. You know? Yeah, I mean, right. th there is something about things that just... It's not like a credit card that's good anywhere, mm, you know? Mm, mm -hmm. We've we got to get away from that attitude. There's something about Oklahoma that is different from other places, and that's why you're there. That's what's cool. You know, there's something about Nevada. There's something about being a Paiute Indian as opposed to, you know, someone else. Sense, cultural coherence, is not transferable across all boundaries at any given time. And why should it be? You right. know, why right. should it be? Right. No, I 100% agree with that. I think that living in Oklahoma now and sort of being a, a, among these familiar landscapes, the way that people park their cars on the grass and the way that the grass even grows in, in different fits right. and spurts and, <laughs> and, and the trees. And it's a very green summer. We've gotten a lot of rain. So this is the greenest it's ever been. I felt like it was sort of a welcoming me back. Like I'd never, like mostly Oklahoma in the summer is brown. Like it's yellow and brown. But this summer is very, very green. And so I think, again, taking these walks, putting the butterfly in your mouth, sort of understanding the space that you're in allows you to connect to it in a way that it's like giving yourself an extra brain, right? And so I think... Good way to put it. Yeah, I think with anxiety and with depression, I think that those are demons. And I think that those demons take up residence in your brain and they have nowhere to go. But if you can assemble a team and that team is the trees, that team is the front porches of your neighbors, right? That team is that guy who's standing in the street. Those that, like, if you, if you... Put your psyche out into the world, right, as it's becoming part of you inside, then I think that those demons become subject to the outside world itself, right? And Oklahoma doesn't have any time for that kind of shit. It's a hardworking place. It doesn't have time for anxiety or depression or right. any of those kind of things. So, again, when we talk about the magic that we're going to be talking about, I'm, of course, coming from it from a very animist perspective. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about what do you, what do you think magic is? I think it is animist-driven. I think that, that I totally believe in the great traditions of, of animism from around the world. I think that it's a starting point of connecting to uh, individual psyche, individual body, with community, with, with non-human environment, you know? And, and it's one continuum, and that the continuum is, is alive and real unto itself all the time. Um, and really, I mean, I, I think one of my best nonfiction pieces ends with the line, who are you to feel alone? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I really yeah. believe that. I, I think that, that um, most of mental health problems in the West uh, whether it be anxiety, depression, um, paranoia, you know, any kind of substance abuse issues, all of it really hinges on a kind of, of loneliness, um, mm -hmm. you know. And there are people in the world who just don't feel lonely, right? You know, right? And because, I, uh, because I think you we to need to ask them, right? And we we need to to get with that program. And and to me, that that is where magic starts. Of, of just being able to c 
connect with the world. I mean, I, I love the idea that you're concerned about what's on people's porches. Yeah. Um, because that's what, that's A, I think what good writing is about, is, is being attentive and looking around. Um, and I'm tired of people who uh, claim to be writers who, who really aren't uh, interested in human beings. Um, I mean, that, and there's a lot more to be interested in than just human beings, right? Um, but if you're not at least a little bit interested in other people, um, yeah, you're not really a writer to me, you know? That's great. Um, That's what I was going to ask. That was the next place I wanted to go was how this all relates back to writing. And I like what you said there because I do feel like a lot of writers are kind of moving their dolls around the board. Um, they know how story works. They've read Joseph Campbell and they're able to sort of create these, uh, these little dolls or action men or whatever you want to call them and sort of make them kiss and make them fight and, you know, take them places. But they're not, they haven't become golems yet, right? Like they don't have any life breathed into them. And so I don't have any answers, but I'm curious as to what you think the connection between magic and writing is. Well, I think that magic starts with a belief in being part of something bigger than you are and feeling good about that, you know? Um, and feeling that there's something to explore rather than there's something to express. You know, I, I get tired about people who, want to, who, be, who are into self-expression. I, I want people who are out exploring what they don't know you know, yes. that, that, that gets me turned on. That's it's great. Like, you know? No, that's it's amazing. Like, no, it's, I love the idea of exploring versus expressing. Because like you said, expression, people can find solace in that. There are people who love uh, books because it reminds them of themselves and they feel a connection to a person. And for a second or two, it alleviates the loneliness. There's nothing particularly wrong about that. But in a bigger context, if you look at a filmmaker like David Lynch, who I'm sure I will mention 150 times on this podcast, but that is a person who I've never felt that they were expressing anything. They were always no. exploring. And it going some weird, weird places that, that then make you feel like you can actually adventure out into some strange terrains yourself you know that's right that's right i mean where did this idea come from that we know ourselves mm. that's just such bullshit we don't have any idea you know we we are amazingly unknown terrains to ourselves all the time and we just need more courage to go out there you know um do you know john Lilly, the guy who um invented the sensory deprivation tank and was oh, yes, the, the yes. great dolphin communicator. He's a great hero of mine. And um, he said something that I think is really profound because I did a lot of sensory deprivation tank work uh, in my um, middle to late 30s, like hundreds of hours. Mm -hmm. um, I had access to some really, you know, really cool stuff. Um, he said that his experience was the great fear that humans have is not of death. It's of madness. It's of dissolution of self. Dissolution of self. Mm -hmm. That's what people, that's the existential threat that people have. And that was exactly what, I mean, that met, 
I mean, whether I was doing LSD and tanking or just tanking, um, or being out in wilderness environments. I did a lot of, you know, really hardcore wilderness solo stuff. Um, I, I wasn't afraid, you know, I, I really felt that. I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of losing my mind, losing my sense of, of my personal being. And then I kept asking, well, who do I think I'm losing here? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? yes, that is it. No, that's great. That is a great insight, I think, because... When you look at things like anxiety, anxiety is fear about what will happen to you in the future. And depression is being upset about what has happened to you in the past. And the answer, right. the, 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 the common denominator that needs to be dissolved is the idea of you. Um, Connor Habib has this great phrase that our heads are meeting places for spirits and our thoughts are their voices. And I love that. I love the idea. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I love the idea of us being connected to spirits and to place in this sort of rhizomatic, um, almost mycelial network. You know how mushrooms grow huge underneath like the roots of trees. And, you know, it's essentially the biggest brains in the entire world are these mycelial networks of mushrooms. But when you become something more akin to that, when you start to realize that when you get down to it, when you get down to your core, there is no you there. Now, to many people, this is very terrifying. But once you get there, you realize that things pass. We live linearly in time. And that all you can really do, there's that word again, you, right? But all you can really do is explore. You can't, it, makes, right. it makes no sense to have anxiety about tomorrow. And it makes no sense to be depressed about all the fucked up shit you've done in your past. Because there is, there's no you there. There isn't, in fact, you know? I mean, if you go to look for that, where, do you, where is it, you right. know? Point, point, where me, is that? point to me where you are. Point to me where your thoughts are. They still haven't figured that one out. Science has been trying to, but uh, we'll, get into my, we'll get into my science hate in another episode. <laughs> but. Well, I, I, there, there is one nice sort of segue here, though, that, that takes us back to the social practical world. John Cage is an artist and musician that I... I go backwards and forwards on, and you probably have too. Um, I don't know how important, you know, I, I just can't make up my mind. But he, has a, he was, a, in addition to being a musician, he was a, a fanatical mushroom hunter. And um, he was out with um, a, a famous botanist, and uh, they were hunting for uh, mushrooms in uh, New England. And... Uh, he said, you know, it's just so nice to be with um, someone who isn't as snarky and difficult as, as musicians can be. And uh, his botanist mushroom expert friend turned to him and said, you clearly know nothing about what botanists are really like. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the things that you and I want to break down is that we want to be... Um, I don't know, welcoming to, to people without being snarky and also not apologizing for liking long neck beers and pretty women. Thank you for listening to episode zero of No Country. We hope you enjoyed it. 
If you know of anybody who might find the things that Chris and I talk about interesting, please do alert them to this podcast. Uh, Go ahead and subscribe to it. Share it on all of the social media. And tune in next week where we'll have our first proper episode, which will mostly just look exactly like this episode. If you like the music on this episode and going forward, that's done by Andrew Osborne, who goes by the name Osli, O-U-S-L-I. It's on Spotify, um, Bandcamp, everywhere you can get it. It's really good ambient tracks. My brother's a very talented musician, and I want to get as many people as possible to listen to his stuff. So please do that, and thanks also to Andrew for mixing this episode and making it sound really good. All right. Talk to you guys next week.